Welcome to the Grace Bible Institute, a ministry of Grace Church of Orange in California. We hope you'll be encouraged and blessed by the message. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good evening. Welcome to Forgotten Doctrines. I have been immensely encouraged by your presence here over these past now six weeks. We've got one more to go on December 12th. I'm excited and encouraged about it because you want to hear and and learn doctrine, but you don't just want to do it just to get a lot of info, but you want to do it to live it out. And so I know you have a deep desire to not only know the Word and what it teaches, but actually to live it, not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. So I want to commend you in that, and thank you for being a part of this. We've gone over now five weeks, and what I have done is my notes are designed for your further study. You'll notice there are no fill-in-the-blanks. I do say a lot of things that aren't in the notes, but I put everything in the notes that I want you to have, because I want you to take it and study it even more and look it over. And Usually I go over a review, but I'm not going to do that tonight. You can do your own review of the, of the, of the last five sessions. There is a one-page or to half-page review on every session in your notes I gave you tonight. So if this is the first time you're here tonight, you still have all the review of the synopsis of every one of those. So we started with the authority of Scripture, went to God's providence, and I was going to teach God's providence and God's sovereignty. And I, as I started studying it, I'm like, no, we're only doing God's providence. And then I said, we'll, we'll do this later. And so we added in man's responsibility for tonight as well. So God's sovereignty, man's responsibility tonight. And then on December 12th, God's sovereignty and the existence of evil. And so we'll be looking at God's sovereignty a couple different times. So we did, we've already talked about predestination and foreknowledge, um, election, reprobation. We've talked about free will. We've talked about the will of man in salvation and sanctification. We've talked about divine retribution. And so tonight, I will just say this. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, I probably am, okay, because there are a lot of overlaps within these five sessions, and they're natural overlaps, okay, these are things that go together in the Bible, and tonight, the way we're going to do this, if you want to look through your notes real quickly, what we're going to do is we're going to see where the doctrines are taught in Romans chapter 9, that's going to be our primary place of residence uh, tonight, then we're going, we're going to have part one and two of that, okay, then we're going to see some implications. Then I'm going to show you how the doctrines are taught in John chapter 3. And, and that'll be a really fun thing to go through. And then some application. And I want to leave a little extra time for application tonight. You can break out. And there's about eight or nine things that you're going to be able to look at and say, so where do you see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility at play in these various arenas of life? Okay? And so you're going to want to look for scripture. You're going to want to uh, discuss that together. So let's go ahead and, and dive in here. And, and let me go ahead and say a few things to begin so you know where I'm coming from. And I want to be clear about that. So you know we're going in Romans 9 tonight. And obviously I'll be preaching Romans 9 starting in January. And so this is going to be coming from a little bit different angle, but it's still straight on what does it say, okay? But the sovereignty of God, what does that mean? The sovereignty of God means that God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. That's not hard to say. 
Okay, it's a simple thing to say, and it's kind of the capstone of all doctrine, all biblical doctrine, the sovereignty of God. So when you look at a systematic theology book, you might not find a chapter on the sovereignty of God because everything in the doctrine of God is about how God is sovereign and then how that all plays out in Scripture. So the sovereignty of God means that God is the supreme authority and all things are under his control. You want to get that very clear, okay? So one Bible dictionary defines it this way. It's his absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. I wouldn't want to stand up here and say anything else than that. I wouldn't want to, to downplay that in any way in the presence of a holy God. Okay, God is sovereign. Now, when we say he is sovereign, he is sovereign in certain arenas. He is sovereign in creation. Okay, he is sovereign in providence and in providentially orchestrating events. He is sovereign in redemption, salvation. And that's where we're going to look primarily tonight. Okay? And he is sovereign in judgment. We looked at that last time with reprobation. So the essential assertion of Christian doctrine and belief, God is king, God is Lord over all. There's no one higher. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen, before it happens, and in the way it happens. The Nicene Creed states, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Okay, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So you can put it this way. God's sovereignty is his comprehensive almightiness. Okay, it is his overarching almightiness. When we say almighty God, we are saying that he is sovereign. Now, we're also looking tonight at the responsibility of man. Now, I'm going to be going quickly tonight, by the way. And I think you all have my email, but it's mshara at graceorange.org, M-S-C-I-A-R-R-A at graceorange.org. If you have questions about any of these uh, or anything in the Bible, I would be more than happy to interact with that with you, but on that with you. But uh, the, the responsibility of man, okay? Mankind is under God and answerable to him for everything. Now, it's true that some people, and you probably know some of them, can completely spurn God. Some people say God doesn't exist. But just because we say something doesn't make it true. Everything that we are asserting about God's sovereignty comes from the Bible, okay? And again, we're going to be looking primarily at Romans 9 tonight, as well as John chapter 3. John chapter 3 really puts sovereignty and responsibility side by side very nicely. So responsibility of man. Mankind is under God, answerable to him for everything. Mankind is not autonomous. Mankind is not the master of his fate. Mankind is not without accountability. He is not untethered from, from God's uh, overarching sovereignty, even if mankind says God doesn't exist. So we have to be very clear about that, okay? Man is responsible to God for his thoughts, for his words, for his actions, his choices, behaviors, uh, for his sin, and for his response to the gospel. Now, let me give you a little bit of uh, biography, autobiographical detail on this. Okay, so when I was younger, uh, if, if I had been asked to explain what it means that God is sovereign and that I'm responsible, my answer would have been saturated in self-determination. It would have been saturated in self-determination. I think you'd know, but I, I didn't become a believer until I was almost 20 years old. 
So before that time, my answer would have been so man-centered. You would have heard about my works, my efforts, my worthiness, all that kind of stuff. And my ideas did not come from the Bible at all. It was just my own reasoning on how I thought things ought to be. My own way of figuring it out, and it wasn't very good. I was very absorbed, and you might be able to say the same thing about yourself at some point in your life. I was very absorbed in, a, in an independent, self-sufficient mindset, uh, self-esteeming, self-exalting air that we all breathe uh, every day of our lives. And I took my views with me on to, uh, to Long Beach State in college, and I was just, I, seriously, I was just a kid trying to figure things out. And I just had all sorts of weird ideas about how life worked. And I thought I was just fine. I didn't want anyone to bug me. I was justifying myself daily in every way. And I wasn't following Christ. Now, think about the sovereignty of God and what it meant to you at a time in your life when you weren't acknowledging the sovereignty of God. You didn't even know the term. I did not know the term. If someone would have come up to me and said, talk to me about the sovereignty of God. I'd be like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. The sovereignty of God, in that, in that part of my life, it, you know, whatever, God is in control or God is over all or, or God is almighty, that meant, here's how I would have put it back then. Well, that means he can do whatever he wants as long as I give him permission. As long as I give him the go-ahead. As long as I uh, gave him permission to act, he could do anything he wanted. Now, the sad part is there's a lot of Christians that live like that. Uh, you mean know the poem Invictus, right? Uh, I want to be the captain of my soul. So here's what I did. And, and again, you might be able to, to relate. I, I just cherished my own autonomy. And I ended up worshiping my own autonomy and supposed uh, self-determination of my own will. And it, it was, it's really the ultimate in self-delusion. If you really think about it, anybody who's not acknowledging God, they're living out the ultimate in self-delusion. We want, you know, what we'll do is we'll say, oh, but, but look at all they've been through. Have a heart, you know, come on. Anyone who's been through that would be an atheist or anyone who's been through that would be, you know what? That doesn't hold any water. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I mean, I've been accused of being insensitive before. I remember when my fifth child, Sophia, was playing soccer. She was like five years old and I was coaching and all these parents who had their like firstborn <laughs> five-year-old on the team and I had my lastborn five-year-old, I'm like, She's falling, you know, falling on her face on the field. I'll be like, she's fine. She'll get up. I remember one parent going, oh, I can't believe you're not running out on the field. I'm like, I'm not running out on the field. She is fine. She'll get up. She'll heal. I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but seriously, think about people that have gone through the worst things in life and they trust God with everything. And sure, people go the other direction, but it's not, it's not, this is not a moving target here, okay? It's not a moving target. But the ultimate self-delusion is, you know what? Well, I'm God, and God is doing my bidding. I didn't even know how wrong I was. I didn't even know how crazy it was to be thinking this way. And I remember acting really, again, I didn't know the word. I was acting like I was sovereign over my life. And I lived for a long time like that. And I had my, you know what's interesting? I started going to a church that actually was preaching the gospel. I had my worldview actually affirmed by well-meaning but mistaken Christians who essentially held the same view. 
but then God did something in my heart, and, and, and I think you know where I'm building up to here. You know, God changed my mind, and, and, there were, and it came through painful circumstances. It came through dramatic failings on my part where, where God gave me a really close-up, you know, microscopic look at the reality of my own depravity, my own inability to, to run my own life, and basically my, my utter failings in being my own Savior and Lord. And the foolishness of trying to act sovereign in my own life. And, and it wasn't an easy time for me, okay? This was not an easy time. This was not one of those, wow, that, that was an awesome time in life. Now, I look back going, I'm so glad God did that in my life. And by, by his grace, he granted me even to go through the, those tough times. But you think about when you're going through a self-sufficient, man-centered part of your life. Let's say you're going through that even, let's just say, all right? I'm not accusing anyone here because you're all real amazing people. But what if, just what if you were going through that kind of time right now in your life? And you were going through a time where you're like, I can do this on my own. And you have a pretty man-centered worldview. And then it starts crumbling all around you. What happens? You fight, you claw to actually make sure that the ground doesn't crumble beneath your feet. Okay? You don't usually just like go, okay, Lord, I, 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 you know, I yield. Okay? Um, so the emotions go high on this and tempers probably run pretty short in this, when you're in this, in the midst of this. Well, I didn't know it at the time what God was doing in my life. But what God was doing was he was saving me. He was bringing me to the end of myself. And, and he was showing me how utterly inadequate I was and how sufficient he is. And I got to tell you all of that because God put me in waters that I couldn't navigate. And God put me in situations that I had to admit, you know, I'm up a creek without a paddle here. And I don't know which end is up. And I'm guilty before a holy God. And I'm utterly unable to help myself. And, and I fought and fought and fought that. To the point where, and I couldn't have explained it well then at that point, but looking back, and you know, after getting into the Word of God and seeing what God was doing and seeing what had really taken place, oh, I see what happened. I was spiritually dead and God made me alive. Now, I was under, I, I was hearing the gospel during these times. I was just fighting against the gospel. You know, I had gone to a church that uh, on Monday nights had basketball. Uh, and uh, volleyball, and so um, the whole deal was uh, could play basketball and meet girls, okay? Come on, you know? Why not? Of course. And so, but then I started going to Bible study. Next thing you know, I'm hearing the gospel over and over and over again. So what happened is this. Jesus brought my dead soul to life, right? Jesus gave me faith as a gift, uh, and I responded to him by faith because he gave me faith as a gift. So what happened was, and you looking back, you're like, wow, God's sovereign hand was guiding me. And I didn't even realize it. Now, you think about this. Okay, so that was 1982. You think about this. So 36 years. And there have been plenty of times, lots and lots of times, where God takes me through the pain of a microscopic, self, painful self-examination and the horror of a fresh look at my own sinful condition. This is what it means to actually follow Jesus and dwell in the word and, and actually be honest before God and others, to actually get a clear picture again and again and again of your depravity. And if you're sitting here tonight going, that's never happened to me, you might not even be saved. I'm serious. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone here to not go through the terror of, under, of, of, of realizing how sinful you are. Because if you don't go through the terror of realizing how sinful you are, 
How do you know how great Jesus is? What are you, what are you comparing him to? Well, I was really good and he made me a little bit better. That's not the way it works, okay? That's just not the way it works. So I tell you all of this for two reasons, okay? Two reasons. One, praise the glories of God's grace. First and foremost, you want to praise the glories of God's grace. You give your testimony, you share your testimony to someone. You know, like again, you don't want to have a testimony that says, I was a really good guy, a really good gal, and then um, Jesus kind of pushed me to that next level. That's not a testimony uh, that's based on the gospel, okay? That, you're misunderstanding the gospel. Okay? Now, I was a lost sinner, depraved, uh, on my way to hell, fighting against God, however you want to put it, and I realized... God opened my eyes. I was blind, and now I see the truth about what God has done. So you want to praise the glories of God's grace as you give a testimony of his grace. Uh, but the second reason is, I, this is to introduce a subject that's not easy to navigate. You're like, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I'm telling you, you, you probably know, you might even be one of those people where you're like, well, here's how I think it works. And you're not really based on the Bible, you're based on emotion. And that doesn't work, okay? You, wanna, you want your argument to hold water biblically. So I'm going to try to explain some things that only those in Christ can understand and often find it difficult to understand. And, and I know, okay, I know these things are not easy to grasp, uh, but they are gifts from God meant for us to deeply believe by faith. And so uh, it's very clear the Bible highlights God's sovereignty and also... Uh, shows us man's responsibility over and over and over again. I remember several years back, I was talking to someone that was leaning towards, you know, probably putting too much weight on man and not enough weight on God, but they're a, a dear brother in Christ. And I remember telling him, like, hey, you know what I did? I, I went through the book of Romans. It was years before I was going to preach it, but I remember going, I went through the book of Romans and I I looked through, and every time I found something that is, is signifying the sovereignty of God in salvation, you don't have to go very far in the context. In fact, in the context, every time you see something about God's sovereignty in salvation, you see something about man's responsibility to respond. It's just all over the place, okay? It's all over uh, Romans chapter 9 as well. So you, you, that might be a good thing if you're going, well, really? Just try it out. Test it out. Seriously, pick one of the epistles, pick Romans or pick Ephesians or pick Colossians or Galatians or whatever. Pick one and just do that. And like take an orange highlighter and a green highlighter or whatever and highlight every time something that's referring to something about the sovereignty of God and salvation. And then highlight it every time you see something about man's response. And you'll, you'll be blown away by how often it is there. So... This, the first great doctrinal truth, okay, standing as a capstone and a pinnacle of all great biblical truths is God's sovereignty. Now, what man's responsibility is, is it's a biblical truth that, that causes us to take an honest look at our condition before God and our response to him, and we realize we're going to be held accountable for our thoughts and our words and our actions. Okay, and, and, and that should generate reverence for God, Okay shouldn't cause you to run out the door in fear. It should actually cause you to run to Christ in faith. So a couple more things, and then, then we'll get into Romans 9. But I think that when you think about this, uh, 
you know, even the idea of, hey, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? We make this way more complicated than it is. We make it much more confusing than it is and, and a lot more combustible than it really is. Um, I want to say what I say tonight, I want to say it uh, in a way that a child could grasp, okay? Uh, simply put, uh, this, this is, you could put it in this sentence. It's in your notes, but God is over all and man is under God. God is over all and man is under God, okay? There shouldn't be any Christian that would ever even disagree with that, okay? No believer is going to disagree with that. Uh, but it's a, it's a sensitive topic. There's an element of mystery that surrounds it. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I will say that some people may find they've been believing something less than biblical. Well, I had it explained to me a different way. Sorry. Uh, test it. Is it biblical? Now, I don't mean, well, you know, I can glue these two verses together or put it this way and not and ignore what it really means and just, hey, but it sounds like it's saying this, okay? Uh, remember that we going, we're going with a grammatical, historical, biblical hermeneutic, meaning that we believe that the, the actual words that God put in his word, the way, the order of the words and the words and what they mean actually mean something. And historically, it meant something to the original authors. And we work very hard to figure out what the original author intent was. What did God mean when he said that? He didn't mean 15 things. He meant one thing for everything he said. He wasn't trying to confuse us. We confuse us. People are like, well, but, but there's so many interpretations. No, actually, no, there's one interpretation for, for every, every verse and every passage. There, there are many applications, but there's one interpretation that's correct. Okay? Sure, there's a lot of supposed interpretations, but many are wrong. And, 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 and please don't think that, you know, I'm standing up here like arrogantly saying, and every interpretation I've ever made on any Bible verse is correct. I am not saying that, Okay. You have to go, hey, look, you can take the best shot you can at what did it mean in the original languages? What do those words mean? What are the tenses? What are the context? What's the, who was getting written to? What was it, what, what was getting, you know, what was getting pointed to here? And then you make, and, and in context of the, of the passage, of the chapter, of the book, of the Testament, of the whole Bible, this is as best, my, my best shot is this, this is what it means. And that we should be able to actually be confident in that. We shouldn't be wishy-washy. We shouldn't round all the edges and say, well, you know, it's kind of up for grabs. I just don't think biblical truth is up for grabs. I think it's, it's possible to know because God has given us uh, the spirit to help us understand, but also many tools, many tools to help us understand his word. So, so let's go ahead and, um, and look at Romans 9. Go ahead and turn to Romans 9 if you're not there already. So seriously, when you look at a topic like this, here's what happens. Someone either thinks, oh no, I've been believing something less than biblical. Uh, okay, so trade it out for something biblical. Okay, so you got a big bucket of rocks and these are all your beliefs. Take out the ones that don't match the Bible. Take out the ones that don't match uh, sound doctrine. Throw those to the curb. Put the, the right ones in, okay? That's awesome. You know what that means? You're learning and growing, okay? Oh, but it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, that means you're learning and growing. All right, so we're all we're all in this together on that regard. Now there, there it is possible, and again, I don't doubt anyone's salvation here at all. But I don't know all of you that well. Some of you I know well. You may find, you know, I think I put a thin veneer of looking like a Christian on an unsaved heart. Wouldn't that be awesome if you figured that out before it was too late? Okay, so that's a, that's that would actually be good. 
Um, now, what you, the other thing is, and this is really cool, you might just figure out, hey, that's, that's what I believed all along. I just didn't know the words and the verses and all that. So you put two, two, two and two together, and God's going to give you some new places to, to, to go and show people like, hey, look what I saw here. And this is what, this is what, this is what I believe, okay? And, and I wouldn't shy away, by the way, from uh, sharing these with anybody that, that wants to hear, okay? Because it's the Bible, all right? Uh, it's not like, okay, only show them John 3.16, all right, until they get to a certain point. Just, you know what? Just let the word speak. Um, I, I remember a story, hearing a story once about a guy who um, was going to kill himself. He, was gonna, he had a gun. He was walking down an alley, and he was going to kill himself. And he heard a, 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 serv- a, a service going down in the basement. Uh, they were just reading the Bible. They were literally just reading the Bible. I think I remember his name, but I don't want to say the wrong name. I think it was Harry Moorhead. Harry Moorhead or something like that, a guy that uh, influenced D.L. Moody. Uh, anyway, he got saved from hearing the word, hearing the word read out loud. You know, give attention to the public reading of Scripture because the Scriptures are powerful. You should read the Scriptures. Anyway, let's go into Romans 9. Romans 9, one of the best chapters in the whole Bible um, when it comes to how we ought to view the basic relationship between God and man. Don't be afraid of Romans 9. Okay? Don't go, oh, but I really like Romans 8 because it's so comforting. Mm-hmm. You know what? You've got to get to Romans 9 at some point. Okay, uh, Paul got to it really quickly when he was writing Romans. <laughs> okay, it just, it flowed, all right? So um, Romans 9, one of the most important chapters in the Bible when it comes to how we ought to view the basic relationship between God and man. And it really ought to shape everything that, on how we view his sovereignty as well as our response. So let's go ahead and let's read Romans 9. That's what we're going to do first. We're just going to read Romans 9. I'm going to go ahead and read it. And here's what I'll do. When I stop reading, someone else pick up and keep reading, okay? And then when they stop, someone else come up, pick up and start reading. We get all the way through Romans 9, okay? It'll take us like three minutes. Here we go. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them be the patriarchs for, and form from their race, according to the flesh, in Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But is not as... Though the world, though the word of God has failed, for it is not for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said: About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, but because of works, uh, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, <clears throat> the older will serve the other. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, 
He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and those who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, <coughs> there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him all right. So praise God that he gave us Romans 9. And let me point a couple of things out just that we just read. Do you notice that the phrase, what shall we say then, has, is being repeated several times? When you see that, what shall we say then, and Paul is saying this, it's, it's like he's saying, are we going to call God into question? Are we really going to go to a, an answer that doesn't fit Scripture? Are we really going to go there? No, we're not going to do that. So what shall we say then? There's always a question mark. There's always some kind of a, is there, like, like verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So don't ever go, he's saying, to the... the the, the error of saying, well, I guess God's unjust. So don't basically twist the scriptures. Don't, don't take something and say, well, look at the way it turned out. So God's not good. Don't do that. So what shall we say then is going to tell you, wait a minute, um, you know, time out. Don't go the wrong way. Okay, keep going the right way. And notice verses 15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. But on God who has mercy, those are key ver verses there. Look at verse 20. This is a key one too. Who are you? <laughs> okay. So who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? All right. It's like, it's like 
It's like Job, okay? That, that's a quote of Job 33, 13. <laughs> what are you thinking? You're answering back to God. You can't do this, okay? It's, it's foolishness to do that. So who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Remember who you are. Remember who he is, okay? And then you go all the way. Look at um, verse 34 of chapter 11. Just go there again. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Okay, so... Two truths in Romans 9 every Christian must grasp in order to properly relate and respond to God. God is over all. He is sovereign. Man is under God, responsible. It's the word I'm using, responsible, okay? So God reigns as king. Man is accountable to him. Um, a lot of people would say that's no big deal, but it is a big deal. This is a very big deal, okay? You can't say, well, I accept God's sovereignty, but I reject, you know, that mankind has any responsibility. You don't want to go there. Uh, you don't want to reject God's sovereignty and just say, well, it's all what man does, okay? You don't want to overemphasize or underemphasize one to the exclusion of the other. What you want to do is realize that Romans 9 clearly illustrates the essential relationship between God and man. God is over all, man is under him. Uh, and this is telling us how God initiates salvation and how man responds, now, aren't you glad that God waited till Romans 9 to give this to you? It didn't start in Romans 1, okay? There, remember, this, this is like one of the best, you know, legal briefs ever written, right? It's like it just lays out in clear, orderly detail uh, the situation of, of mankind's sin and, and God's holiness and, and what Jesus did at the cross and on and on and on. And what, really what Romans 9 is now doing is basically kind of pulling the curtain back and showing what God was doing behind the scenes. Okay? You ever been to a movie set? You kind of see behind the scenes of how things were or, or the kitchen of a restaurant? You ever been to a kitchen of a restaurant? You see kind of how, how, uh, how it happens or backstage at a concert or something like that? You, you get a glimpse, okay? I remember a few years back, Angela and I got to go. Um, actually, I'm not sure if Angela went. Maybe it was my son. I think it was Michael and me. I can't remember now. It was my brother-in-law, Michael. I mean, I know it was the two of us. But what we got to do is we got to go to a meat company, a meat packing company that Angela's Uncle Harry owned, Elm Hill Meats out in Tennessee. They make this regional favorite um, Wampler's Whole Hog Sausage, okay? And, and don't be afraid of the, of the title, okay? What it means is they, they, they use all the good parts, okay? <laughs> Not that they use all the bad parts. So they don't just grind up a whole, you know, hog. That, literally, these hogs, you could fit like four of them in this room, and then there, there's no, no standing room. Uh, it's like these are big hogs. And we got to see from, from the moment it walked in, seriously, it's like as big as a VW. And it's like walked in, they cap it in the uh, skull, kind of, if for the queasy, be careful. There was a lot of blood, okay? But they basically shoot it in the head. It drops to its knees. And then within like five minutes, it's hanging up. It's being bled out. And then within an hour and a half, it's on a truck to all the stores as sausage. It's awesome. And now, but now you start with that. And by the way, if you want to know really what was going on behind the scenes, what they do is they start the day with that. And they do the, the choice cuts first. And then by the end of the day, you're making Red Hots. And those are not the candies, okay? Uh, these are really inexpensive. Um, if you're from the South at all, you might have seen these. But they're really inexpensive uh, hot dogs that are made. They've got a red color because you just got to blend it all in and put some coloring in and stuff like that. And it's all the ends and all the pieces go up the conveyor belt and come out as red hots. And so, you, But you look behind the scenes and you're like, you know, I'm, I don't want to eat the red hots, but the sausage is really good, okay? Um, 
Romans 9 is giving you the behind-the-scenes look at God's working in a Christian's life, okay? So think about your life. You're making decisions. You're running households. You're running businesses. You're, running, you're going to school. You're buying groceries. You're, you're relating to people. You're reacting to events. You're doing all sorts of things. And all the while, God is sovereignly working behind the scenes. Now think about, if you can remember, back before you were a believer, and what your life was. You're just doing your life, right? And, and, and you just get, you know, people call it like being surprised by grace. Uh, there's other ways. What are some other ways people uh, describe uh, becoming a believer in, in, in ways that like God stopped me in my tracks kind of stuff? What are other ways can you think of? Steve? Seeing. Seeing, yeah. Blind and now I see. I was blind. I couldn't see. Now Being I see. Found. found. I was lost. Now I'm found. Very biblical concepts here. Okay. Tripped you. <laughs> All right. So um, I love the fact. You notice how Romans nine one through five starts. He's like he's putting out all this emotion. You notice all the emotion. I love that because he really cares about unbelievers. All right. We should have emotion when we're thinking about unbelievers. We should be actually thinking and planning out ways to engage unbelievers with the gospel. We should be thinking about our coworkers and our neighbors and our family members that don't know Christ. We should actually be scheming up ways to get the gospel to them. Okay? Paul is so emotional about it because he has so much feeling for his people and he desires so much for them to be saved that he would actually say, look at um, chapter 1. Uh, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. It's what he wants, right? And he, he even said that he would gladly give up his own salvation if his own kinsmen would get saved. And if you wonder that, oh, no, that's not really what he meant, accursed is a really strong biblical word. It's one of the strongest biblical words. Anathema is the Greek word, and it literally means to, to devote to destruction in eternal hell. So what Paul is saying is, I would gladly be devoted to destruction in eternal hell. Verse 3, I, wish that I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. And that's another strong word. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he goes on and kind of gives a litany of, of their... This, but this just, doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense that this is a topic that, that generates a lot of emotion and upheaval in people? And that's not fair. Wait a minute, how can that be? How many people... Do, have you ever run into anybody? Or have you ever struggled with Romans 9? Yeah, plenty of people do. Here's the cool thing. It's in the Bible. It's true. You need to believe it, okay? I'm serious. You just need to believe it. Now, trying to explain it. We're going to try to explain it. But God is overall. Remember this. You've got to get this straight. God is God. You are not. So God's doing what he wants to do. And remember this. He's always good, always kind, always loving, always fair, just. He's always good. He's always great, okay? He's always almighty. He's never unloving. He's never unfair, Right? So he does everything mercifully. And so everything he does here matches up with who he has revealed himself to be in the Bible. Don't ever forget that. So God is perfectly consistent 
in and of himself. He is self-existent. He has revealed himself in the word. He's told us what he is like. And he's never, he's never different than how he really is. So don't ever think, well, God must not be fair. Because you know what you're doing? You're laying something to God's charge that should never be put to God's charge. You should never say that. In fact, what does he say in verse 14? What shall we say then? Again, don't go there. Don't go there. Is there injustice on God's part? Don't go there. That's what he's warning. It's a big warning sign. Don't go there. All right? So just remember that. And remember this. It's the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we have to reckon. Okay? The God of all the universe. Uh, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Acts 4, 12 says, there's no other name given among, he- given among men by which we must be saved. And so you see this. You see, and, and look at verses 6 through 8. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he be saying this? Because people are tempted to say, well, I guess the word of God failed. I mean, hey, it didn't work for the Jews. God's chosen people. He says it's not as though the word of God has failed. So so all of God's promises are true. And so he's going into the backstory of God's sovereignty over human will. Okay? And look at verse 6. This is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. If you're starting to think that Hey, God made promises to all of Israel. So that means it says at some point all of Israel will get saved. No, not every Jew is getting saved. Okay? And when God was making the... We're going to get into a whole other, you know, uh, discussion here. So I'll just make the comment and drop the bomb and then walk away from it. Uh, is, is that when God was making these covenant promises to Israel, there weren't salvation promises. Okay? That he wasn't saying you're all getting saved. We don't have two salvation programs going here, okay? So don't ever think weird things about Israel like everybody's getting saved in Israel. And then, hey, I got 1%. I did the, uh, the, you know, the, the DNA testing. I got 1%. I don't have to do anything now. I'm in. No, you can't go there. All right. Um, not all Abraham's descendants were part of the physical people of God. Okay? And so... Some of those children weren't chosen to receive the promises, okay? So not all who were true children of Abraham through Isaac, uh, in terms of from the flesh, are the spiritual people of God. You got to keep that uh, straight in your mind. Why would you need to do that? Because he's making the point right here. They are not all Israel descended from Israel, okay? Now, remember uh, verse uh, 26 of chapter 11. Go to, go to 1126. It's a mystery of Israel's salvation, okay? And, and just 25 says, lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Remember he said, not all Israel who's descended from Israel. It's not all descendants. This was not saying just because you got the blood that you'll be covered by the blood, okay? A partial hardening until the, full of the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, Okay? Again, you got to go back to now chapter 9, verse 6. Not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Okay? So God's promises are true. They can be, they're all to be trusted. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. He can be trusted. But not every Jew is getting saved. 
all the elect Jews are getting saved. Just like all the elect Gentiles are getting saved. Okay? God's purpose is sure. So he goes on. Now he's going on and he's going to talk about, about um, oh, where are we here? Go to, go to chap, uh, the same chapter. Uh, go to um, verse 9. Now we're talking Sarah. Okay? This is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. So we're talking uh, Genesis 18.10. Talking about what, what, who's the son? Who's the son? Son of promise. Starts with the start, starts with an I, Isaac, not the other, not the other uh, I. Anyway, yeah, Isaac. Um, so the twins, and then there's twins, right? Okay, so uh, verse 11. Uh, at, not only that, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So now we're going through that lineage, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. This is key, okay? very key. Hadn't done anything good or bad. They would do things good or bad. Okay, they would be doing these things. They hadn't done anything. They weren't born yet. In order, remember, God is making the point about what he does in salvation. Okay? In order that God's purpose of election might continue. So now we got election, okay, which we've been looking at in other weeks. So God's sovereignty in choosing, you have the twins, Jacob and Esau. We're not basing this on personal worthiness. You know, Jacob was better looking, you know, or Jacob was going to be a better guy. Uh, and everybody knew that. Well, do you want to talk about Jacob for a little while? <laughs> what kind of guy he was? All right. Think about what some of the stuff he did. Okay. No, he was a sinner. Um, so you're not basing on personal worthiness, but before they were born or did anything, God chose Jacob solely according to what? his will, his sovereign plan. So he says in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now all these people have issues with God over this. You got to deal with it. It doesn't mean he's, he's, he's all hateful and he's pointing the finger at you and he's like that guy that was a bully in high school, you know, in elementary school. It's not, okay, it's, we're not going there, okay? Uh, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. Now, go to Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Okay. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. All right. Now God's talking about his love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, have you loved us? This is, by the way, I preached through... um, through Malachi in 2014, and there's all these questions that people ask God, okay? Like, God can handle your questions, but you shouldn't be doing what they did, okay? Like, don't be disrespectful with God. Like, I can say whatever I want to God because David did. I would be careful about that, okay? I would be careful. He said, they're like, how have you loved us? Chapter 1, 1 through 5. Um, how have we despised your name? Come on, we're good people. How can we despise your name, God? Chapter 1, 6 through 14. How have we turned aside? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Uh, why are you not pleased with us, God? Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Uh, how have we wearied you, God? Chapter 2, verses 17 to 3, 3, verse 6. How have we robbed you, God? We're giving you all this stuff. 3, 7 to 12. What have we said against you, God? Um, <clears throat> all these things you're saying. Anyway, uh, 3, 13 to 18. And then, no, then it builds up to the great and awesome day of the Lord. Chapter 4, 1 through 6. I mean, uh, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, different than a birthday party, Marissa. Okay, the birthday party we got you today. They got all those snacks for you for your 16th birthday. We, did we sing happy birthday earlier? 
We acknowledged, but did we sing? No. We'll do this at the end. Okay. You're going to have to cut this out. Your dad is going to, you know what he's going to say to me tomorrow? I think we're going to cut this part out of your, out of your recording. Because he did that to me last time. He's like, that one thing you said, we're going to cut that out. I'm like, I trust you. I love you. Hey, Randy. <laughs> he's cutting this part out anyway. Randy, how you doing? All right. So the, the, uh, the great and awesome day of the Lord, when, when he pronounces judgment on his enemies and, and blessing upon his, on his chosen. Okay. Are you getting the point here? We're getting the flavor of this. Okay. Now go back to Romans 9. Go back to Romans 9. So, okay. Here's an interesting thing. So this was written like 1,500 years after, after uh, Jacob and Esau died. Okay. And you're looking back over their lives and the nations that came from them, Israel and Edom. And, and God chose one for divine blessing, the other he left to their own devices. Now let's remember the whole idea of what we looked at in, in, in previous weeks, okay? And how he just lets people go their own way, okay? He doesn't have to create enmity towards him and them. He doesn't have to create depravity in them. It's already there, okay? So you get saved. He's... he's, he's He's, he's saving you out of that massive humanity that's going down the road to hell. Now, the massive humanity that's going down the road to hell that doesn't get chosen, they keep going to hell. Now, you're like, but that's not fair. Verse 20, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Okay, you got to always bring yourself back to that. Always got to bring ourselves back to that. Who am I to question God like this? Who am I? Now, you're in good company if you do. But just be careful about it. I'm just saying, just be careful about it. Okay, so God chooses who's going to be saved. This is election. This is what this is showing. This is showing the acts of God where before the foundation of the world, he chose in Christ who he would save. This is the point that's getting made here. And he's using it as an illustration um, of the people that he's referring to here. So remember the golden chain of five links, okay? Uh, Romans 8, 28 to 30. And remember, foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. And remember what I keep in the back of my Bible, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. And some of those things you can see, okay? They can even be tactile. I got a gospel tract, right? And I read it. And I got saved. You know, someone could say that. That's the, call, that's the, the human calling where we, God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel so they respond in saving faith. But remember, there's other things God is doing that you just can't see, okay? But we see it in the Bible. This is what we're talking about here. We're behind the scenes, okay? God foreknew us. He planned to save us. He initiated it. He predetermined to to love us and to set his love on us in a saving way and, and establish an intimate relationship with us. So he predestined that. And we've gone over this on, in recent weeks on, on Sunday mornings, but uh, it's so clear in the Bible he predestined us and you can't make the words mean what they don't mean. Okay? Uh, he decided beforehand to make us like Christ. He predestined us to be, be conformed to the image of Christ. He marked us out. He appointed us, determined to do a work of grace in us. And all that does, it should never, ever, ever cause pride on our behalf against people that aren't believers. What it creates is what Paul is expressing here, a deep, deep desire for others to be saved. We're going to get to this closer to the end here tonight about how much evangelism should be happening 
more and more and more based upon getting chosen by God to be saved. But God's character is consistent. Now let's move on through this chapter. Now look at verse 14. 14, what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part by no means? For he says to Moses. Now he's, he's, he's going back to Exodus 33, okay? So, so the question, is God arbitrary? Is God unfair? Uh, the answer, verse 16 It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is merciful. He's absolutely sovereign. He elects who will be saved without going against his other attributes. He determines who gets mercy, and he answers to no one. He is his own boss. Okay? So the examples here, you've got Moses and you've got Pharaoh now. Two sinners. Murderers. Both deserving of God's eternal wrath. And Moses gets mercy and Pharaoh gets God's judgment. So verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh. I love it when it says the scripture does something. By the way, in Galatians it says the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that was a gospel promise. This says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I love this, the scripture, God is speaking to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see that in verse 17? Okay. That's uh, Exodus uh, 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 9, I think, or something. Um, Exodus chapter 9, uh, verse 16, actually, I think. Um, and, and, And... he ra- I raised you up to show my power. Uh, raised you up, by, by the way. Uh, that's God calling actors up on the stage uh, of human history. Uh, think about how this would have seemed, humanly speaking. Pharaoh, big gun, okay? He would have thought, hey, I got my position. I've got uh, everything. Um, I got my free will, uh, uh, and, and he didn't realize he was serving the greater purpose of God. Um, do you notice he says, uh, he, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills? And I guess I would, uh, I would put this there, and I don't want to downplay this in any way, but y- you can't say that God actively created unbelief or other evil in Pharaoh's heart. It was already there. Okay? God's not the author of evil. He withdrew all divine influence that restrains sin and allows Pharaoh's wicked heart to have its own way. So he, he is, um, and he's doing this for his name. He's doing this for his name's sake. Do you notice that it says in verse 17, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who did he say it to? Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Not Moses, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh was raised up for the greater glory of God. Did he do good? No, he did evil. It's God's name, so God, who God is in all his glory, okay? When he says, my name, it's, it's who he is in all his glory. And he has the right as a potter over clay. Anybody ever worked with clay before? When I was in elementary school, we got to work with clay. Got to get our hands dirty in school. It was awesome. And you got to make things out of clay, right? And it's, it was fun. You got to 
you know? And, and for example, let's say you're making something and you're like, hmm, don't want to do that. Let's make something else, okay? You can do that. You're in charge of the clay. You're the potter. You can figure out what you want to do with the clay. Clay's not going to talk back to you. Clay's not going to say, you know, um, <laughs> I wanted to be a pitcher for water. I didn't want to be a cup, you know? This, this is not going to happen. So look at verse 20. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's literally saying, like, is the cup going to say, I want to be a bowl? It's not possible. You can't do that. So no one's being treated unfairly here, by the way. The, the judge of the whole earth will do right. And by the way, if God doesn't punish sin, he's not being true to himself either. Uh, but it is irrational and arrogant to question God's choices. Uh, Paul is not, by the way, Paul is not correcting those with honest questions about this difficult teaching. He is correcting those who want to excuse their sin and unbelief. That's who he's, he's correcting. Um, some people get the justice they deserve. Others graciously get mercy they don't deserve. The Father chooses. The Son redeems. The Spirit protects that, the life. Um, what God could do. He could destroy us the first time we sin. He could do that. Uh, but what does he do? He patiently endures rebellious hearts. And rather than giving us what our sins deserve right away. And the reason why, because he has prepared some for destruction. Leaving them in the sin that they have chosen. And he prepares some beforehand for glory. That's the reference to election. All for God's own sovereign good pleasure and out of his own grace, not because you're extra special. Sorry. Okay? Seriously, it's not because he, we were the pick of the litter. Okay? That's not the point here. Isn't it? How easy is it as a Christian to look down upon non-Christians? I can't believe they're doing that. Do you remember what you were like? Do you know your propensities to sin? So we have to become, we, the reason why God keeps breaking our hearts a lot and breaking us and showing us new glimpses of our own sinfulness is so we wouldn't be proud and think that somehow God chose us and we're just a cut above. Believers should never be thinking this way. We should have broken hearts of our own sinfulness and then want others to be saved. But we should never look down upon other people and go, you know, I can't believe how bad they are. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So we're, we can't believe how, how, how bad people are in their sin? So we forget our own testimony. You know what? You know what the antidote to that is? Tell your testimony as often as you can. To anyone you can. Your family. Your friends. Your coworkers. Your neighbors. Tell your testimony as often as you can. Put the Bible in there. Get the shed blood of Christ in there. Get the, get the finished work of Christ in there. Don't make it about you. Okay? Last week, uh, we, we visited a guy who's having cancer really bad, and, and four of us guys, I think, were there when it was his birthday, and we, we had a little uh, time with him and got in the word with him a little bit, and we all started kind of talking about uh, uh, what we were like before we were Christians and some of the knucklehead things we did and some of the bad things we did, and we weren't bragging. We were just going, can you believe I was like this? And then it, all, it just brought us all back to, like, aren't we glad God is merciful Aren't we glad God is patient? Wow, aren't we thankful for God's grace? And, it, you know, 
what that does for me is it makes me want to share the gospel with people more. It doesn't make me want to, you know, keep it to myself. It makes me want to literally plan out and make and scheme how I can do that. How I can actually get the gospel to somebody. My next door neighbor, Alex, or across the street, Leonard, or, or Jerry, or, or Quinn. I'm serious. That, that's what it makes me think. So um, Romans 9 should just humble us to the core. Okay, Romans 8 should, should, should um, encourage our hearts. And Romans 9 should humble us. Everything here should humble us, but Romans 9 should just really break our hearts. Um, we are dealing with uh, the infinite and the finite. Okay, so you got God who is infinite and man who is finite. And uh, I know we, we, we do want to get um, to the other part of this. So let's go ahead and um, what, what I want to do is go to part two. Okay, part two. We already talked about, by the way, I, I, I never want to pass up regeneration because I just, I'm just, but we'll get to it when we look at John 3, okay? But let's look at part two. Uh, again, we, li- we live in a culture where, where the sovereignty of God is regularly rejected and man, man's so-called autonomy, uh, pseudo-sovereignty is flaunted and, and, and God is, is patient and he is forbearing. And can you imagine what God is putting up with right this moment? Even the evil of our own hearts. I mean, seriously, even our own sinfulness. God is so forbearing. And we are under him. We are responsible. We are accountable to God for our thoughts and our words and our actions. And our sin condemns us. We are guilty. We're rebellious. We're lost. We're dead. We're enslaved. Uh, The Bible just says it over and over and over again. Okay? Let God be found true and every man a liar. None is righteous. No, not one. The whole world is accountable to God. Uh, Romans 3.19. And so on and so forth. Uh, Romans 5.12. Sin through one man. Death through sin. Death spread to all because all sinned. We have no one to blame but ourselves. We can't blame God. We're calling this man's responsibility. You can call it man's accountability to God if you want, but it's man under God. Man answerable to God. Man, um, all the world accountable to God, Romans 3.19. You cannot blame. How many times do we want to blame other people because we did something? You made me mad. (laughs) No. You didn't make me mad. I chose to get mad at you. You were annoying. But you didn't make me mad. Okay? We blame. We want to blame everybody for, for everything. If you're married, you know what you do. You want to blame your spouse. You want to blame your kids. You, know, and you, want to, you want to blame people for your situation in life. And all I can tell you is uh, we are responsible to God for our thoughts and our words and our actions. All the world is accountable to God. And, and in that context, it's talking about for our sin. Okay? We're going to answer for our own sin. Uh, we talked about the will another, another week, and so I don't want to go over all of that, okay? Uh, but we've lost moral freedom. You have natural freedom. You get to do whatever you want anytime you want. But outside of Christ, you will never want Christ. Until God uh, regenerates you, until God uh, gives you new life, you're never going to desire God until he gives you the desire. And so you're not going to choose him unless he first seeks you, gets a hold of you, and um, so we know that. Um, I don't know if there's a lot more to say about this, except that, um, seriously, it, I don't think there's a lot more to say about this. I want to go to John 3. <laughs> Actually, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to go 
I want to, to look at our response. Just think about our response. Go to, um, still in Romans 9, go to verse 30. We'll just look at 30 to 33 for a moment there, okay? Okay, so you're going to either respond in faith or unbelief, okay, to the gospel. So listen to what this says. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, because you didn't work for it, attained it by faith, okay? But Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law, because they didn't pursue it by faith, but by works. And what you notice is they stumbled over Christ. Okay, so if you look at verse 33, I lay in Zion. This is Isaiah 28. I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is about Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus. This is why Paul says next, I want them to be saved. My heart's desire is for them to be saved by Jesus. Okay, that they would believe in Jesus. So... An unregenerate person is always going to go into unbelief. Okay? You can't do the math and figure it out as an unregenerate person how I can get saved. You don't even want to get saved. Okay? If you're unregenerate, you're not going to get saved. Now, you might show up at a church. And you might look good. You might be moral. You might be upstanding. You might be a really good person outwardly to everyone uh, and, and, and people might say good things about you. They might even want to put you in a position of some kind of helping or leadership. But you could be unregenerate and just have tacked on moral things to your life. Do you know what I'm saying? That might be some of your testimony. Like, yeah, I was like that once. <laughs> and no one even knew it. Okay? You know, you want to hear something interesting? When I got saved... I gave my testimony in front of the college group that Sunday because my college pastor said, you're doing this. <laughs> he said, you're going to get up there and tell this story. Because I went to him on a Monday night during gym night, took him into the kitchen uh, at the church, and I said, hey, uh, I got saved. <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, well, you're giving that testimony this Sunday. <laughs> and th- I'm serious. There are people in the college group going, oh, what? We thought you, you know, kind of, because I wasn't the worst guy in the group, okay? I, I mean, Oh, by far wasn't the best guy in the group. But let me just say, it's like, it's so easy for people to go, oh, they're a believer. They're, they're a good person. Oh, they got a Christian fish on their car, you know, back in the day. Uh, you know, put a little sticker on your car. You know, that was when I was in college, in high school, that's what you did. You put a little sticker on your car if you're, if you're a Christian. And uh, somebody ripped off my car once, okay? My 73 Pontiac Firebird ripped it off from the front yard of my mom and dad's house. My dad was LAPD, and so he actually... They, he did some sleuthing, and they found the car like a week later in El Monte, okay? And ripped it off from Downey. The funny thing was, is on the back of my car, because I was a believer at that point, I had put the little silver Christian fish, you know? Anyone remember those? They don't have those anymore, right? People don't do that anymore. They do the he is greater than I and all that stuff, but, but I had the, the silver Christian fish. Well, you know, whoever ripped off the car was driving that too, okay? <laughs> he didn't take it off the car. So people could have thought, hey, that guy's a Christian. Uh, no, Okay. That's, that's not how it works, okay? Let me tell you what, what the implications are. Somewhere in your notes are the implications of having a solid grasp of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. One, you'll be amazed at the grace of God. And you will not get over it. You should not get over being amazed at God's goodness. 
Coram uh, Deo was uh, the, known as the rallying cry of the reformers, and it, it meant living in the presence of God, living before the eyes of God. So, so you know, uh, we, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes uh, to, to him with whom we have to do. Um, you think about uh, when your eyes are opened and you're not blind anymore spiritually, you become aware of things that you weren't aware of before. And you become amazed at, at God and you become, you don't want to be proud and you want to confess your sins and you want to walk in repentance and, and so you're amazed. The other is that you get assurance. You get assurance and you, you, you read things like what you read in Romans 8 and you're like, wow, God did that for me. You just don't question it. Um, you live appropriately. You, you actually want to live a holy life. You, you actually, you go, well, you know, I want to actually, I want to, I want to do what pleases God. I want to, I want to, I don't want to do this for people. I want to do this for God. I want to be well, the person he wants me to be in my life. And I want to read the Bible and then do what it says. But there's also another aspect that I want to throw out to you is anticipation. I think that when you have a solid grasp of the sovereignty of God and of our responsibility, you actually live like, come Lord Jesus, like you want Jesus to come back. And it's not because your life is rotten, okay? Like, well, I just want Jesus to come back because things are so bad in my life. That's not that. that. I, don't, I don't think that's the way it works. I think it's, I can't wait. I can't wait for Jesus to come back because this is what has been promised. Um, and, and also, what might God do tomorrow? Okay? Think about how many people you know that aren't saved. They could get saved tomorrow. They could get saved tomorrow. Right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> walking in repentance. Okay? That's about walking in repentance. Um, we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us to will and do his good pleasure. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You don't work for your salvation. God already worked it in you, and he's working in and through you for his good pleasure. And so you want to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You want to actually go, hey, God's working in me. I want to trust him all the time. He's the one who's keeping me going. Um, go to John 3. We got to go to John 3. John 3 is awesome. It's about Nicodemus. You know the story, right? You know the story. I just want to point out some things you might have not seen in this in this story. And there's two points I want to make in this chapter, okay? Number one, regeneration is a sovereign act of God. You see that in the first 10 verses. And number two, the, the second doctrine uh, that's taught there is that faith is a gift from God and a required response, okay? You're not getting saved without faith, all right? But faith is a gift from God. You don't have to, like, go find it somewhere, uh, you know, or work yourself up into it. So look at John 3. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. So he was an important man. He was a teacher of the Jews. Jesus even said, aren't you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? What? Okay. Uh, verse 10. Uh, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Okay. He's kind of probably afraid of some of the, of the people that are uh, that, that he would be associated with. And, and it gets to the point. Jesus just gets to the point right away. In fact, Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus wasn't asking. Okay? Jesus answered a question that wasn't being asked. So Nicodemus says, We know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, Unless you're born again. Okay? 
He's, he's basically answering the question that didn't get asked. And he's reading his heart and zeroing in on his core problem. He needs spiritual transformation produced by the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. regeneration. You're not getting saved without regeneration. Regeneration doesn't happen when you accept Christ at the Billy Graham crusade. Okay, now, could it happen simultaneously? Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't come after faith. It's not like, oh, I decided to follow Jesus, then I got born again. What happens is you get born again, then you want to follow Jesus. Now, this might go completely against what you were taught. This is biblical. I'm just saying, what I'm telling you right now is biblical, okay? The new birth is an act of God. How do we know this? Well, because Jesus said, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born result? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born? Um, I'm not talking about that. Okay? You, if you're not, you, okay? So the new birth is an act of God where eternal life is given to, the, to a believer, given to someone. God is giving you eternal life. All right? So being born again is becoming a child of God. Okay? You're trusting in Christ, okay? You can't see the kingdom of God without this, okay? So, um, you can say more about the Pharisees. We can say more about that, but we'll just keep on Nicodemus for a moment, okay? So, Nicodemus has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He has no idea. He goes, talking about physical birth, right? And, And Jesus starts talking about being born of the water and the spirit, which is, Lots of people have different views of that. It's not literal water here, but it's a need for cleansing, okay? Uh, water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, um, renewal, spiritual cleansing. And so it's, it's, it, when it's used in conjunction with the Spirit. So he's talking about your, your soul needs to be purified. Um, uh, and this is what the Holy Spirit does through the Word of God uh, when, you, when, at, when, you, when you're saved, okay? So here's the deal. You can't make this happen to you. The wind blows where it wishes, verse 8. You can't control this. God's going to do something. The Holy Spirit does what he's going to do. It's undeniable, okay? And, and, And then look at verse 11. We speak of what we know and bear witness what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He's making a point that Nicodemus um, had unbelief. He was ignorant of the truth. Okay? And, and he was a teacher of Israel, and so he's kind of lumping them together and saying, you and those you're leading are not believing. So he's not understanding, um, to, he's not believing Jesus' witness. Okay? You didn't receive that. It's a, it's a plural you here. So he's speaking representative of the nation of Israel, but it's also indicting Nicodemus for being an unbeliever, okay? But it's also the collective whole of the nation. And then he goes in to uh, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is the cross. I mean, this is really, you know, this is the Numbers 2, 21 and all that and looking at the serpent lifted up by Moses, okay? Um, and then see eternal life in verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Um, you got 10... Ten times in John talks about eternal life, and uh, 
I believe that's true. Um, and then um, everlasting life. It's, it's, so, and then you get to verse 13, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you're trusting your soul to Jesus, okay? And, and God gives you, God gives you a, a, a new nature. But when does it happen? That's the question. When does it happen? Does it happen when you go, hey, you know, I, I want to walk down the aisle? Or does it happen when God does it? If you notice, uh, again, this could be simultaneous. But God is doing the regenerating, okay? You're, you're not kick-starting this. You're not jump-starting this. So believing in the name, okay, uh, more than just believing it in your head, you're trusting, you're committing to Christ as Lord and Savior, okay? God has given you a new uh, nature. So regeneration, sovereign act of God, unless one is born again. I think it's interesting that Nicodemus doesn't say another word after the first uh, nine verses. He's just like not talking anymore. And the interesting thing is what Jesus was saying first was, you got to be born again. you got to be regenerated. You have to have a spiritual birth by the Spirit of God. And then Jesus basically lays out the fact that he needs to believe in Jesus, okay? Right? That he needs to believe. Uh, now, he's, I'm going to give you something from Spurgeon here um, uh, that it, I, I like. I like this quote, so I'm going to read it to you. Um, so, you know, Spurgeon... Uh, was a uh, believed uh, in all the doctrines of God's grace. He believed in 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 in, in election and and uh, regeneration and all this. But he was also very passionate about evangelism. And I just think that the people with the strongest view of election and predestination and all that are the strongest evangelists. Okay, the people that are weak on on election and predestination try to get people to, uh, they give emotional appeals or they soften the gospel. They try to get a yes. They want, a, they want the, the check mark. They want the notch in the belt. They, and, and, and they might be well-meaning, but they're trying with all their heart to just get it to happen. When you can't make that happen, only God can make it happen. Just preach the gospel and you're successful because they're either going to believe or not. I'm serious. You're called to preach the gospel, Okay. Now, making disciples, teaching people the word and all that stuff, that's a process. That's not you going to someone and saying, you want to be a Christian? Jesus died for you. Say yes to Jesus. Yes? Okay, good. We just made a disciple. woo That's not what we're talking about there, okay? But we just preach the gospel and you're successful. Here's what he says. He says, I see in one place God presiding over all in providence, and yet I see and cannot help seeing that man acts as he pleases and that God has left his actions to his own will in a great measure. Now, if I were to declare that man were so free to act that there was no precedence of God over his actions, I should be driven very near to atheism. And if, on the other hand, I declare that God so overrules all things as that man is not free enough to be responsible, I am driven at once to antinomianism or fatalism. That God predestined and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is not just the fault of our weak judgment. True truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for his, all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that those two truths can ever contradict each other. These two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon one, into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. 
They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. You ask me to reconcile the two. I answer, they do not want any reconcilement. I never tried to reconcile them to myself because I could never see a discrepancy. Both are true. No two truths can be inconsistent with each other, and what you have to do is to believe them both. I just think that's a great place to stand. It is a great place to stand. So let's talk about applying it to our lives. Okay, then we'll have, I guess we only have seven minutes. Okay, you got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven areas of life to talk about. And, and remember this, I put in the bottom of your notes the ordo salutis, just the order of salvation, logical sequence of steps or stages involved in the salvation of a believer. Again, this is stuff that you don't have to tell someone when you're preaching the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to everyone. Preach the gospel that the apostles preached. Preach Christ crucified, risen, coming again. Then let believers find out all the wonderful gems of gospel truth when they start reading their Bibles. This is how it works. Make sense? I know uh, that we just didn't have enough time to go through all of this, and I know it's, it's tough because I feel like I didn't do it justice at all. I feel like I just literally barely, barely, tiny, in a tiny way scratched the surface, and, um, and now we're done. Um, so I hope that some, what, I made, what I said makes some sense. But how do, how do God's sovereignty and man's responsibility play into the following? I want you to look at those, and I want you to talk about it with a few people. How do, how do you see God's sovereignty playing into it? How do you see man's responsibility playing into it? Okay? Do that, and then I'll close this in prayer in a few minutes. So I'm going to finish with one big statement. Uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed, okay? So regeneration is a sovereign act of God. Verses 1 to 10 of John 3. Faith, believing in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, is a gift from God and a, and a response that must be there. Verses 11 to 21. So the new birth must be accompanied by and appropriated by an act of faith. So basically, you must be born again and you must believe. Jesus made it really clear. If you believe, God caused you to be born again. 1 Peter 1.3 says that. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So if you believe, God caused you to be born again. What this should drive us to do is praise the glories of God's grace and share the gospel with as many people as we can more and more and more and more. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the grace you have poured out on us. And thank you, Lord, for your mercy and, and for causing us to be born again. And we didn't make it happen. Thank you, Lord, that you chose us. And thank you that you now have given us a calling that is our whole life calling to share the gospel with as many people as we can and to please you in all respects. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this lesson has helped you understand God's word better and the doctrines we hold fast to as a Bible-focused, Christ-centered church intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. We hope you'll join us again.